0: That George, thanks. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of music, Uh, we thank you for George's work in the ministry there at Point Loma. Uh, for the affection that's felt for him and for Londa. We thank you for the, the gifts that you gave him and how it brings joy to our hearts to hear uh, music that's prayed to your glory. We thank you for the teaching that we've had this week, uh, for the tradition that's been, that we've been reminded of uh, this morning about Dr. Mation, uh, the struggles, the disappointments, that were made sweet by you. Father, we pray that you will help us tonight as we consider this theme again of Christian education. Help us to become more biblical in our view of it, uh, regardless of the current situation that we're in in terms of education, whether we're a teacher or a student, pastor, elder, Help us to be more biblical. Help us to be conformed to you. Lord, we thank you for your plan of salvation and sanctification. We thank you for having us be a part of you in Christ. Uh, For indeed, that's the only way that that we could do any good thing. Help us to abide in you, uh, even as we consider these things tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. just an announcement to begin. Uh, Mr. Butters, Steve Butters, does have available some tapes on Christian education, uh, some lectures by Cornelius Van Til, also a series done by Roger Wagner for Family Radio. So if you're interested in more of what we've been talking about this week, please see Steve. Raise your hand, Steve, over here. We can make arrangements to, to get Copies of those tapes to you. Now let's place ourselves in the week here. Uh, You might remember that table that I passed out to you the first night. Uh, The first evening, we talked about the who of teaching just who is teaching our children or who are we as we teach? What about teacher student relationships? Seeing the antithesis often between a heart of darkness and a heart of light, between a Christian teacher and a non Christian teacher. We also looked at history and were reminded that we need to look at the great men of history when we study history. Um, again, the presentation this morning about nation uh, uh, is an excellent example of good history, where we look at the great men and we see the, the moral struggles there. Now, that's history that comes alive. You know, what was boring about that? That's as you see a man struggle, uh, not only with his culture, his friends, but also physical illness. How inspiring. Then last night we talked about the way we teach or how the teacher is teaching, a pedagogy. What is a biblical pedagogy? And we saw that there were some idols that have been used in secular education and often in Christian education too. Some take a romantic view that is, really emphasize feeling or the human being creating reality. Others will emphasize the rational approach where we have a great belief that the mind can see reality without the help of the Bible. Both of those are flawed. Either of those needs to be replaced by a biblical approach to education and thinking and so on. Tonight we're going to ask the question, what is the teacher teaching? And by way of doing that, I want to work through the history of American education in our country, a brief survey of that really, to see where we've come from and where where we are. And if we have time, we'll talk about science as well. Last night, some poetry, tonight perhaps some science experiments, but we'll see how the time goes. First of all, we have to take our quiz, right? Every night we have a quiz. You're getting ready for your final exam Thursday night, of course. Okay. Describe two metaphors for the lips of the adulteress. Who? And Pepsi, yeah, Pepsi and then Razorblaze. Yeah, okay, get there. Okay. Who played the lead role in the Dead Poets Society? <laughs> now, this, this is multiple choice. Okay. Okay. Walt Whitman
1: <laughs>
0: Alfred Lord Tennyson Robin Williams or Bart Simpson Okay. now how, how does the rationalist fail to teach the dead poets properly with his boring higher criticism how does the romanticist fail to teach the dead poets properly with his rebellion against all standards with his self indulgence and despair well We won't collect those papers from you. You can just file that in your notebook, I guess. But the main point here and the main point throughout the week is that our schooling, as everything else in our life, should be guided by God's Word, not by some rational theory or scientific test or taking a survey of all the people and seeing how we should teach. At the same time, not by some intuition or feeling or common sense that we might have, but by the principles the clear principles of God's Word. That is how we decide who, how, what, and when we do Christian education. Like membership in the OPC, it is a matter of principle rather than a matter of what seems to work. Did the OPC work for nation? Certainly not. Was he right for beginning and working in the OPC? Certainly he was. You see, we need to make our decisions based on principle rather than on pragmatism or what seems to work. Thy word is truth. Keeping this in mind, let's turn back again to Colossians 2. Start out our considerations this evening by reading some more from that second chapter in the epistle. Colossians chapter 2, and now we're down to the ninth verse. And I will read Colossians verses 9 through 15. Keep in mind the context here. Paul is warning, warning the church about people will come and try to cheat them out of their inheritance. Try to steal it away. Try to play some kind of sideshow trick on them. Try to restore some kind of uh, faint uh, shadows from the past that are not relevant now. Or try to bring in some mystery religion or Greek philosophy. But what does Paul say? He says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, But with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations. That was against us, and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In Christ, we have the fullness. We see the fullness of God. Christ was not just divinity. Christ was deity. Uh, He is not just a God. He is the God. He was not co He was co-substantial, as well as similar to God. In essence, he was God. He had the same essence as the Father and the Holy Spirit. And no other traditions are needed to explain that to us. Nothing can be added to that because what is God? Well, God is a spirit, and God is the all-in-all. All. God is I am. What could be added to that? There's no deficiency in the biblical faith. We should be satisfied with that. Is our reaction to this truth one of gratitude? Or do we try to add other things? Any addition to God's word is really an attack. As we go about our daily business, the big things in life, the little things in life, if we ever turn for... Ultimate guidelines to some other source or some additional source, even though we do have our Bibles open, then we're in big trouble. Then we are making mockery of Christ. Whether we're the Papist, the Roman Catholic, the Mormon, the Unitarian, the psychologist, or the humanistic educator, if we add to the gospel of Christ, to the whole counsel of God, then we are wrong. And praise God, verse 9, tells us that we have been given this fullness in Christ. As we are in Christ, as we are unified in Christ, as we are in union with Christ, we partake of this godliness. To add anything to that would detract from his glory. It would be like saying that, well, we need something more. We're not satisfied with this. We need something more. I know often in in the uh, counseling situations that I find myself, people will come in and will say, well, have you prayed and are you going to church? And and, uh, here are some other suggestions from God's word. And uh, here's, uh, you should go seek forgiveness from this person and so on. Well, I've tried that. Can't you help me with some cognitive psychology or some behavior modification or something like that? You see, that's questioning the sufficiency of Christ. We don't need something more. We need more of the something. To add anything to Christ is to show ingratitude. There is no other way to salvation, as we see in in verse 11. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Christ himself has called us and made us Christians. Now, the shadowy shadowy signs of the circumcision are unnecessary for us now. And the utopian schemes that humanists, that pagan educators would come up with are unnecessary. And this is very important for our discussion of the history of American education tonight because indeed this is what replaced Christian education in the early part of the 19th century. Unitarian utopians came along and said, well, we have a better way With our intelligence and our education, we can show you how to have a better society. You really don't need to worry about human depravity. You know, that's open to interpretation. That's open to debate. And here we can come along with education to take care of you. Leaving out Christ entirely. Oh, Unitarians don't care much for Christ. Certainly not for his deity. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. How crucial it is that Christ was God. Our hope of salvation depends on that. The Unitarians and the educated masters from the universities now and over the last two centuries have denied that. We need to be aware of what we're up against. Verse 13 reminds me a lot of Mason. When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations. that it was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Christ did all of that. We did not do any of that. In the course that I teach at the seminary, critiquing secular theories of counseling, one of the books that I assign to the students is entitled The Christian View of Man written by J. Gresham Mation. Indeed, as Reverend Denison said this morning, it is an excellent, short, systematic theology. I really commend it to you, and we have it on the book table up here. I guess we're all a little bit of salesmen. Uh, But it it is an excellent little book uh, for anybody to read. And he does some fine work there, talking about the sovereignty of God, predestination, freedom of choice, some of those difficult issues, some of those issues where we do stand at opposite of the Arminian. Uh, I commend it to you. And we have to keep in mind that it's our union with Christ, this baptism that he has done and this uh, forgiveness, God making us alive. I remember an OPC pastor back east at a missionary conference we had, Larry Wilson from Columbus, Ohio, uh, illustrate this by asking his son to come forward. I won't embarrass Drew for that right now, but he had his son come forward and just lay down on the ground. Now, oh, please lay down. And just use that as a, a, uh, you know, a picture example of how we are before we're born again. We're dead as a corpse. We're nothing. Christ has to make us alive. That's very profound. And, and that hang on to that basic guideline as we talk about education and about the various theories that humanistic educators make. Hang on to that. Because that's a very important distinctive. and We must not let that go. We must always start with, start with God. Buy the t- truth and sell it not. Proverbs 23.23 23. American education moves from the Christian to the progressive. I've given a little outline on the board that is a concise summary of what's happened in American education. There are two dimensions that I'd like to point out to you. In education, we talk about a lot of things, but especially we need to talk about the content of what's taught in the classroom and also the structure. And now here what I mean by structure is what is the political structure under which it's taught? Now the the content in the 1700s, is Christian. The content remains Christian through the 1800s, but when we get to the 20th century, it's no longer Christian. It's progressive or Unitarian or uh, absent of Christ. It's a man-centered sort of curriculum. Look at the bottom line, though. There's a little bit of a difference. The structure, the way that we set up our... Types of education, whether at home or school or church and so on. But the day schooling for the kids was very much Christian in the early period, but in the 1800s, it became what we call progressive. Horace Mann, public schooling and so on. And then it it remained progressive throughout the 20th century. It's a very important historical note that it was the structure that changed first. And I'll tell you how Horace Mann made that deal. But let's go even further back just for a minute, back to the 1500s, and think about, think about what's going on. And you know, Surprisingly, the best book that's been written on American education, this one that I have along here, by Lawrence Kremen, uh, at the time is a Princeton scholar, now I think he's at Columbia in New York City, spends probably three quarters of the book talking about the Christian world. Kind of a shock for us as Christians. Usually we think of, well, there's church history and then there's real history. But not so with Kremen's work, which is respected as the most important work in American education. He sees how the two are together. That church history is part and parcel of real history. That indeed, real history is defined by Jesus Christ. And so he spends most of his time talking about the Puritans. Surprise, surprise. And there's some uh, great footnotes in here. Uh, I have a list of some of the books that he refers to that some of you might like to have, some Puritan classics. But he reminds us that in the 1500s, just before we're all getting ready to hop over to the, the New World, you have quite a struggle going on, of course, between the Romanists and the Reformers. And we might add a third group there, represented by Erasmus, where we have a mixture of the the church and the Greeks. A lot of bubbling in that cauldron. A lot of very intelligent people, a lot of very literate people, perhaps more literate than we are. Many of these people grew up knowing Latin and Greek and Hebrew, having read uh, their Bible thoroughly, knowing the Greek classics and so on. It really was a different day. The pilgrims, who we're familiar with from our Lucas film, of course they came here because it was too crowded in Europe. No, that's not the reason they came here. A lot of people are crowded and they don't haven't come to the New World. They came here because they wanted to save their kids from the Dutch. That's what that's thinking, huh? <laughs> They had fled religious persecution. They had some freedom there. But they were concerned about the culture of the day there. They were concerned that uh, the kids would all be watching Dutch MTV. <laughs> okay, Watching The Simpsons every Sunday night instead of doing their meditations. whatever. But they would be changed by that culture. And that was a very top priority for them. And really was one of the motivations for coming to the New World. Now, the Puritans follow along with plans for institutions. They're not only trying to save the kids from an immediate problem, but they're trying to set up some institutions that will ensure freedom and godly children for a long, long time by God's grace. Uh, it is true, as you read some of these footnotes and references, that they were looking at to the new world as a new Israel, a new land of milk and honey, A new Canaan, a new city on a hill. Not the, not the new Israel, but a a, a biblically based sort of government, governmental system. That is historical fact. Just as um, another culture, Sweden, five centuries before, was affected by Christian missionaries changed in its very way of doing justice, changed from the Norse legends and the human sacrifices and the trial by ordeal, so too were the Indians, the Native Americans, made the change in many ways. Now, there's many wrong things that we've done later in terms of reservations and the socialism that goes on there. But we need to keep this in mind that the Indians were barbarians and pagans. And by the way, if you're ever in Pittsburgh, I commend the the Fort Pitt Museum to you, where William Trombetta, Trombetta is a PhD, secular man, but, but really knowledgeable in these things. And he has a number of exhibits in his museum that portray the uh, barbarism that was part and parcel of the Indian culture. I say this because as we look at the Lucas Films history disc, the Indians are really made out to be the heroes, saving the pilgrims from all kinds of problems, uh, one of our observers here pointed out, though, that the soil really was the same over here. I mean, it really wasn't that much different. And uh, then there also was the massacre of 1622 that Lucas doesn't talk about in his presentation. But at any rate, we need to understand the mindset in the 1700s, which came up out of the 1600s as the Puritans came over to America. So we have Christian content the Bible, of course, was the number one book in the, on the family coffee table. Number two and three would be Fox's Book of Martyrs and Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's amazing to read uh, the numbers of copies of Fox's Book of Martyrs that were circulated in the 1600s. So everybody had read it. Okay, just everybody had read it. So we have Christian content. And this, then, you see, was the, the curriculum of the time. Now there were some fine libraries in New England as well, but primarily it was these basic sources that were read to the family and then eventually the kids would read because it was interesting, it was exciting to them, of course. And the structure of the education was centered around family, church, private tutors, much different than what we have today. Now the state was involved somewhat I don't know if Tom Tyson would like this or not, but there was state-mandated catechism. (laughs) They actually had laws that said that you heads of households must catechize your children every Sunday evening. And they got that specific. And the pastors were also called to task if they did not catechize their young people. Again, you can look at Kremen for the footnotes on this. So the characteristics of this education would be that it was non-standardized really. It wasn't standardizing a bureaucracy. Remember Mason's fears in the 20s about the bureaucracy? Well, we didn't have that church in Puritan, New England. You had general guidelines and rules and laws, but within that there was a lot of creativity and diversity. Cotton Mather was very cosmopolitan as a man. The education was family-based, church-oriented. These are our true founding fathers. Indeed, we do need to get back to the sources. Results of this education, because I want in just a minute I want to look at the results of the progressive education as well. Results of colonial American schooling. Well, they were very literate. They did read a lot of the fare that was coming out of Europe. Literacy is estimated by Kremen to be 70 to 100% among adult males in the colonies. Even the Homer Simpsons of the time could read, how about that? Plus the quality of the letters, Uh, even considering Tom Paine I guess, the quality of the letters is very high, much higher than what we have in our letters today. So those are the results of this kind of schooling in brief. But we move into the 1800s and you can see That while we still have Christian content, the C stands for Christian, while we still have Christian content, now the structure begins to change. It changes first at Harvard. And I wish I had more time to go into the history of Harvard, the great commencement addresses that were given by Chauncey and others, to see how Christian, how biblical, how Calvinist Harvard was. It really is true. That is the tradition there. Hard to realize today when we know the Harvard of the 1980s and 90s, but in 1803, Harvard elected a Unitarian to be president. As you can imagine, there was a long historical process leading up to that. You know, it wasn't just some quick thing that happened, but it was a significant fact, significant event. A Unitarian, one who did not see Jesus Christ's deity, was elected. A very liberal person, one who saw education as the means to utopia, the way we can solve all our problems. In 1830, Massachusetts elected a Unitarian governor. So you see it goes from the educational institution then to the political institution. This is a long way from the Christian subscription oaths of the 17th century. Key figure in the 19th century, the 1800s, would be Horace Mann. Call me Esau. Horace Mann was born, raised, and educated as a Puritan, home in a church in Franklin, Massachusetts. Went to Brown University and became a lawyer. And I wasn't going to tell this joke, but I've been inspired by Roy tonight. So. And many of my Bayview brother know the joke, so it may even be a group affair. But since we're speaking of lawyers... <laughs> Did you know, and I have been in psychology for quite a while, so I I try to, although I stay a distance from my clinical license, I try to stay on top of of new trends. And there is a new trend in psychological research. You know, for years and years, they studied learning by the use of rats in mazes. How many people here have had a psychology course? Anybody? Okay. Oh, you've been contaminated, all right, okay. But you remember that, the rats, T-mazes and reinforcement, all that stuff? Well that that may be about to change because rather than using rats today, they've decided to use lawyers. For one thing, there are more of them. Oh, I feel good already. So I'll go on to the second. For another thing, there are some things that rats just won't do. Okay, you're still laughing. Third. The lab technicians were becoming attracted to the (laughs) rat. And finally, no no public outcry.
1: (laughs) A new trend in
0: psychological research. Okay. Where was I? I love that joke. (laughs) So, horse man, educated as a lawyer at Brown University. That's where we were. right. Right, yeah. Yeah, soon uh, became a legislator, but most of all became a crusading reformer. Now, not the reformer of the 1500s, but this is a new kind of reformer. We had reformers, progressive reformers you see, in the 1800s, 1830, 1840, and 50, and so on. And he pushed for public education, for compulsory schooling and compulsory taxation. So the control began to shift from this private approach to a governmental approach. So that's what I mean by structure. The structure of education shifted from family and church and and private sector to government. It began in Massachusetts. One of the reasons that Mann was put up to this was that they were unable to get other elements of a socialist agenda put into place in Massachusetts. Uh, there was a man named Owen, Robert Owen, who was quite a socialist, uh, who wanted to see the country go more that way, but the people really w- wouldn't buy it. You know, they had had enough of that totalitarian kind of thing in Europe. Uh, Horse, but but Mann could get the, the program in if he kept Christian content. So we have the McGuffey Readers of the 1830s. Okay, and I don't have mine along with me, but if we had time to read them, we'd read them. It's like reading scripture. We read from Isaiah and we read about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not just a great philosopher. He could actually implement what he said. That's in the McGuffey Reader. And did you know that the McGuffey Reader is the biggest bestseller of all time in public education? If you look at all the books that have ever been sold, the McGuffey Reader is still number one, even though it's been phased out for about 40 years. And just everybody used the McGuffey Reader in the public schools in the 1800s and the early 1900s. And Horace Mann, in fact, had an evangelical view of the Christian Republic. I would have a Unitarian leadership, but he didn't mind a lot of that baggage coming along. So we have a progressive structure with a Christian content. And his reform is similar to other reforms going on in society. You see, in general, a lot of the Jacksonian reformers were concerned about the free market kind of society, the rough and tumble sort of frontier society that we had. And especially in areas like mental health, mental retardation, and so on, they established an approach to treatment of those problems known as the asylum. you heard of the insane asylum? Well, before 1830, we didn't have any asylums. I don't think that means we didn't have any insane, <laughs> but we didn't have any asylums. The thing is, people who were retarded or who had severe personal problems were integrated into the community. And I, I know that even in some rural small towns in Clearfield, I mean in Pennsylvania, in Clearfield, Smithport, Bradford, and so on, occasionally you'd see some, some retarded folk who would like sweep up in a garage or uh, sit on a bench in front of the grocery store or something like that. And that it used to be that way all the time. In fact, you go back to the Reformation, it was actually Martin Luther who moved these kind of services from the church to the state, believe it or not. You read George Grant's book on the dispossessed. He gives historical account of that. So we need to to talk to Luther about that. (laughs) So the idea was that if you can take people and put them in an asylum and have your experts work on them, then you can return them back to the community and they'll be okay. But what did not happen? They did take them out. They never went back. And eventually you get the snake pits and all the horror stories about the institutions. And the institutions become bad because they're isolated from the family and the community and so on. And we know that man's heart is depraved. Unitarians don't know that, but we know that. And so there are abuses. And to this day there are abuses in asylums. And we need a whole different approach to the treatment of people with problems And as you can imagine, I would suggest that the church is right at the center. Public education actually became an approach to mental hygiene in the 20th century. Heard of mental hygiene before? Dental hygiene? Dental floss? Mental hygiene? Not mental floss, but it's an approach to prevent mental problems. Many of the reformers in the 20th century were encouraged by the public health movement that eliminated, for the most part, tuberculosis in the cities. There's a public health movement. Put the lids on the garbage cans, don't spit on the sidewalk, there's reasons. There's reasons why we're not allowed to do that stuff so we don't get tuberculosis and other kinds of diseases. Well, that's, that's physical hygiene. The experts at the time, now you see psychology is coming into play around 1900. The experts said that we can have a mental hygiene. Okay, we can know what uh, the the symptoms are of mental disease and we can predict it and uh, listen to this. The hygienists were convinced that psychiatry had identified a specific susceptibility to mental disorder a specific symptomatology, a specific constellation of personality traits, and here are some examples. And now don't look at your neighbor, think about yourself. Okay, Okay, if you see any of these early warning signs, shyness, daydreaming, I'm keeping track here, (laughs) withdrawal, introversion, the shut-in personality, These were all psychiatric danger signals, an early warning system of serious mental illness, even of dementia praecox, which is schizophrenia uh, by the old term. The psychiatrists and psychologists believed that they really could pull this off. Now, we who are in the field look back at this. (laughs) Some people are all upset now. Sorry. We can talk later. (laughs) We who are in the, in the field look back at this with sort of an amused humor because we know that you know, psychiatrists can't even tell us if John Hinckley is crazy or not. I mean, 50 say he is, 50 say he isn't. It depends on who's paying you, I guess. And that's pretty much the state of the art. It is an art. It's not a science. And indeed, it's sort of a folklore. But the educated class, and now, as you think about these time frames, think a little bit about what was going on in the Presbyterian Church and so on and at Princeton and those kind of things because it, it, they really were a lot of the same people. They felt that if we could just have a National Committee for Mental Hygiene, sort of like a CCEF of the old days, no. <laughs> a National Committee for Mental Hygiene that would have lectures and institutes and do pamphlets and booklets and all these kind of things that we could send this new gospel out to the parents and of course they would pick right up on it and then they would use the new sciences of psychoanalysis and behaviorism to train up all those brats, okay? Forget about what grandma says about child rearing. Forget about the Bible. Go listen to a lecture on Freud at a child guidance clinic. So they did that and they did some of that in the 20s and people went to these lectures and uh, they did a little bit of daydreaming. <laughs> it really, they really didn't respond to it. So the experts were very upset about that because they felt that they had the new gospel to, to get out to these people, to help these parents, these pre-scientific parents be good parents. How are we going to get to the kids? Well, let's bypass the parents and go right to the public school because that's where the kids are. And indeed, in the 30s, as you look at the textbooks that were assigned to teacher training students, many, many of them have the term mental hygiene in them. Mental hygiene in the classroom, mental hygiene in the school, mental hygiene in America, mental hygiene in you. Uh, All these kind of titles that had, and indeed it worked. The emphasis went from content uh, in the curriculum to the personality and by 1950 at the National uh, White House Conference on Children, The experts were pretty much ready to declare that they had changed the role of public education, that now the public education was the primary socializer for our children. 1950, they declared victory. And ever since, it's been a working out of that. So, what do we have? We have a progressive structure then. We have the government controlling education um, in our country. Eliminate the church and family as much as possible. What about the content? this point, too, the content's becoming progressive. By that, I mean man-centered or non-Christian. The Dick and Jane books come on the scene. c spot, run. The look and say reading method. Uh, books that, are not, that don't uh, thrill to the uh, impact of an Isaiah or a Jesus Christ, but that are, almost seem like they're written by committee. There is some ideology there, and now in the last ten years, that's been more and more apparent feminist ideology, Native American ideology, Marxist ideology, and so on. is coming in clearer and clearer. But in the early part of this century, it was primarily to just get the Christian stuff removed. And so my grandmother in the teens uh, had the McGuffey Reader. And at the fifth revision, it still had some Christian content in it. But my father did not have the McGuffey Reader, as he went to, did his schooling in the 30s and the 40s. And by that time, it's, it's humanistic. Now, we were still allowed to read the Bible, still allo- in this classroom, still allowed to pray, but you know what J. Gresham Mason said about that. Have you ever read his remarks on that? It's fascinating. Again, we have another book up here that has that in it. But it really is amazing. His critique of that is that that's no prayer at all. That's no Bible reading at all. You know, that's a, a poor counterfeit. And he was very much against it, against it. And he was also against the Department of Education at the federal level. See, now we are becoming, we are seeing Nation's nightmare come true. We are becoming more and more centralized. We do have a Department of Education that Reagan was supposed to phase out in 1983. It's bigger and better than ever. Than ever. Stocked with lots of fine conservatives, but there it is. Department of Education. Centralized. Nation was... Sounded the, the alarm bell on that back, in the, back in, the, in the early 30s. One other character that we need to take into account here in our quick trip through the history of American education is John Dewey. Or we might call this Baalism Revisited. Now, John Dewey is the transitional figure, I would say, between this rationalist approach and the romanticist approach in the methodology of teaching. He's a very famous psychologist. He's a very famous educator. And his emphasis in his teaching was that kids need to learn by doing. They ought not to have to sit like you're sitting and listen to this pedantic Peterson talking on and on and on. Okay, they need to learn by doing. They need to touch things and have concrete experiences and so on. So away with the liberal education away with the classical education, and instead of it, let's have hands-on learning by doing. It is true that at the end of his career, like so many of these guys, he regrets that crusade that he went on. What he said was, yes, we took out all the content, but we didn't place anything back in. Even from his humanistic pagan point of view, he was concerned about the content that was not put in. So you have learning by doing and so in order to understand potassium, you have to experience it. Okay, you can't just be taught the periodic table of elements and so on, but you have to experience it somehow. But he was not only interested in educational methodology, John Dewey was a politician as well. He also had many strong views on government. Indeed, he said that we could not have a democratic society as long as the Christian philosophy prevailed. And you know why? Because Christians say that there are the saved and there are the lost. And we can't have that in a democratic society. He was a very shrewd guy, a careful reader. We cannot have those kind of distinctions, the saved and the lost. So let's put that aside, and instead of that, let's have this imperialistic sort of Unitarian view of society. Dewey said we have to adapt to the great community. That is the primary goal of education. Not maturity in Christ, not the fruits of the Spirit, but we have to adapt to the great community. Here is his pedagogic creed. We have the Nicene Creed, we have the Apostles' Creed. Well, John Dewey was not bashful. He wrote the pedagogic creed. I have a summary of that here. I believe that the teacher is engaged not simply in the training of individuals but in the formation of the proper social life. Wait a minute, that sounds like what we're supposed to do here. I believe that every teacher should realize the dignity of his calling, that he is a social servant set apart for the maintenance of proper social order and the securing of the right social growth. I believe that in this way the teacher always is the prophet of the true God and the usherer in of the true kingdom of God. That's pure blasphemy, spoken or written by John Dewey, the most influential educator of our century. So indeed, you see, we have this movement from the 1700s where we have Christian content, Christian structure, 1800s we have Christian content, progressive structure, then finally in the 20th century, progressive content, What's been the result of that? Isn't it fair to ask about the fruits of a program? Well, you're all tired and familiar with the various studies, national studies that have been done by um, our expert educators over what they have wrought. Uh, Things like SAT scores, functional literacy, on and on. I I won't go into the statistics. A Nation at Risk was published in 1983, and I simply would read to you uh, perhaps the the summary paragraph. Um, The educational foundations of our society are presently being eroded by a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens our very future as a nation and as a people. If an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today we might well have viewed it as an act of war. As it stands, we have allowed this to happen to ourselves. That was written in 1982, published in 83. SAT scores are down despite an increase in money in the public education. The scores of the top students are lower than 20, 30 years ago. The scores of the lower students are lower. The middle kids are lower. Subject by subject, we can go over the, the list of problems. And those of you in business who are interviewing people coming into your personnel departments know what I mean. Uh, I have up here, if you're interested, you can look at it afterwards, a um, report out of training magazine talking about uh, the personnel ma- manager's impression of the new people coming in and their lack of skills, not only in terms of reading and doing math and so on, but also their work habits, the way they dress, and so on. Conduct. We have academic problems, we have conduct problems. Main problems 30 years ago, when my dad was in school 30 or 40 years ago, uh, chewing gum, uh, talking in class, things like that. Now what is it? Rape, mayhem, violence, violent crime. Now they're trying to decide in some city schools whether Bringing a gun to school really should lead to an automatic suspension. You know, that's, that's the kind of things that are going on at school board meetings now. These kind of, that. dropout rate in many, most cities is around 30%. The manners and more rays. I remember uh, leaving uh, Clearfield Junior High in 19, or Senior High in 1969. Left it pretty well in good shape there. Uh, within two years, everybody's wearing blue jeans The dress had totally changed. Marijuana had reached central Pennsylvania. And there were just a lot of changes. Now, nothing wrong with blue jeans per se, but in our context, it was symbolic. And with the kids that we knew that first started wearing blue jeans, they were the rebels. They're the ones ahead of the pack. Hyperactivity now is the rage. And that's another learning disability that I'd like to talk to you about sometime. Just like dyslexia, it's a pseudoscientific term there really is no good definition of hyperactivity. There really is no such animal as minimal brain dysfunction. And I can show you secular textbooks that will substantiate that with with research, and yet it's an excuse that's used for just plain poor discipline, uh, kids that, that need discipline. Politics have been affected by our education. What about this Gorbachev love feast that we've seen the last couple of months? Isn't there still a gulag with Christians laboring in them? What about Mandela? I mean, isn't the African National Congress communist? Uh, aren't they the ones that were doing necklacing and Winnie Mandela his second wife really um was sort of uh, saying that that was okay? I mean, is he the one that New York City spent $10 million on to have a ticker tape parade? I mean, don't, I thought we did that for astronauts and baseball teams and stuff like that, but you know, not, not our enemies. Are we really two monkeys on a treadmill, the United States and the Soviet Union? Well, thanks to schools of education and so on, well, many of us think that today. But our problem is where can the Pilgrims go, go this time? Um, what about the media? What's been the effect of all this on the media? A little visual aid here that I brought along. This is what we have today. Okay. The Simpsons. A you know, typical American family—is that what we have today? Well, often we do. Now, in a lot of ways, this is the arts and croissants Hollywood crowd making fun of the intact stay-at-home mother, middle-class American family. In many ways, that's that's one thing that's going on. Okay, and that's one reason it's in TV Guide and so on. Yet, in other ways, I think some of the yuppies are taking it taken in by the Simpsons in a, a little, to some extent. Sort of like Garrison Keeler in his Prairie Home and Robin Williams and his Dead Poets. They want the fruits of the covenant. The yuppies really would like to have family, but they don't. They don't want to bow the knee. And this is a family of oafs. Maybe they all did go through public school and so on. But at least the Simpsons criticize psychologists.
1: Laughter
0: I haven't seen them do a job on lawyers yet, but I'm sure that's coming. And they critique the public schools as well. IQ testing, so on. Okay. So this gives me some good ammo to use in my lectures. Okay. I want to finish up talking about the biblical mandate for Christian education. In order to do that, I have to put this away. Passing on the faith is what we must do to pass on the faith to the next generation. And I know our time is about out, so I'll just make a few concluding remarks and pick up with this next time and talk about science and math as well. Genesis 18:19, The promise that's made there to Abraham is not just to Abraham. It's made to him and to his family. Um, let's turn to Psalm 78 to conclude uh, our remarks tonight. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. What are we to do for this coming generation? What's our obligation? And for the young people sitting here, what is your obligation as you think about the coming generation? And what are you going to do with this message that I'm giving to you tonight? All my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. Now in the Puritan period, they had Fox's Book of Martyrs. They had Pilgrim's Progress. They had the Bible on the coffee table. What do we have there? What are we watching? What are we sharing with our kids? What are we, how are we training our kids? Verse 4, We will not hide them from their children we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. Do we not see His power and His wonders in science, in literature, in history, in mathematics? Did some alien being do all that? Or was it the Lord God Jehovah, the God who is I Am? Did He do all of those things? Ought we not to teach our children these disciplines knowing that the Lord did these things? His power and wonders. How can we share with them the Grand Canyon or the pilgrims or advanced calculus without talking about God's covenantal faithfulness, the regularity that he's built into the universe, and about the mystery, the mysteries that are there that, that we don't have to fret about because we know the Lord has us in his hand. Don't we need to teach our kids about all these things that way? Is it just in self-indulgence and despair that we, that we give as a context taught by a non-Christian teacher? He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them. We're not born with this stuff. It has to be taught to us. It's hard work. It takes time. It's hard for me to set aside the time to teach my kids the catechism. I don't do a good enough job on that. I need to work harder at that. It takes work. It takes time. My kids need to work at that. It doesn't just happen. We don't just sign up and we're there, boom. We've got to work at it and work together and work from the heart. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they, in turn, would tell their children. This is a long view. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not do Christian education, whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. You know, this is a very tremorous thing that we're talking about, being able to pass on the faith. And uh, we need to talk about this in great humility, knowing that it's only by relying on the, self, on the, on the sufficient Christ and the sufficient word that we can do it the right way. Otherwise, we're lost at sea. So let us try to be faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We feel so inadequate at times as we think about uh, the poor job that we've done in passing our faith on to the next generation and in preparing them for another generation. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to be faithful to Your Word. Help us to Remember to ground every discipline in your word, to not see history or science or literature or mathematics as somehow in compartments outside of your word, but as resting on your word. And then help us to not only do that in the classroom, but to live a life where you are present, where you are in our minds at all times, where we pray without ceasing where we rejoice in you at all times about the wonders of your creation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Let's be dismissed right now. The hour is late, and if anybody has questions or comments, I will be here.